0: CHAPTER Fifteen OF AN OLD MAN'S LOVE BY ANTHONY Trollope. THIS LIBRIVOX RECORDING IS IN THE PUBLIC DOMAIN. Mr. Whittlestaff goes out to dinner. This would be her last opportunity, so Mary told herself as she got out of the carriage at Mr. Hall's front door. It was made manifest to her by such a speech that he did not expect that she should do so, but looked upon her doing so as within the verge of possibility. She could still do it, and yet not encounter his disgust or his horror. How terrible was the importance to herself, and, as she believed, to the other man also! Was she not justified in so thinking? Mr. Gordon had come home, travelling a great distance, at much risk to his property, at great loss of time, through infinite trouble and danger, merely to ask her to be his wife. Had a letter reached her from him but a week ago, bidding her to come, would she not have gone through all the danger and all the trouble? How willingly would she have gone! It was the one thing that she desired, and as far as she could understand the signs which he had given, it was the one thing, one thing which he desired. He had made his appeal to that other man, and, as far as she could understand the signs which had reached her, had been referred with confidence to her decision. Now she was told that the chance of changing her mind was still in her power. The matter was one of terrible importance, but was its importance to Mr. Whittlestaff as great as to John Gordon? She put herself altogether out of the question. She acknowledged to herself, with a false humility, that she was nobody; she was a poor woman living on charity, and was not to be thought of when the position of these two men was taken into consideration. It chanced that they both wanted her. Which wanted the most? Which of the two would want her for the longest? To which would her services be of the greater avail in assisting him to his happiness? Could there be a doubt? Was it not in human nature that she should bind herself to the younger man, and with him go through the world, whether safely or in danger? But though she had had time to allow these questions to pass through her mind, between the utterance of Mr. Whittlestaff's words and her entrance into Mr. Hall's dining-room, she did not in truth doubt. She knew that she had made up her mind on the matter, Mr. Gordon would in all probability have no opportunity of saying another word to her, but let him say what word he might, it should be in vain. Nothing that he could say, nothing that she could say, would avail anything. If this other man would release her, then indeed she would be released. But there was no chance of such release coming. In truth, Mary did not know how near the chance was to her or rather how near the chance had been. He had now positively made up his mind, and would not say a word further unless she asked him. If Mary said nothing to John Gordon on this evening, he would take an opportunity before they left the house to inform Mr. Hall of his intended marriage. When once the word should have passed his mouth he could not live under the stigma of a second Catherine Bailey. Miss Lorry, pray let me make you known to my intended. This came from Mr. Montague Blake, who felt himself to be justified by his peculiar circumstances in so far taking upon himself the work of introducing the guests in Mr. Hall's house. Of course you've heard all about it. I am the happiest young man in Hampshire, and she is the next. Speak for yourself, Montague. I am not a young man at all. You're a young man's darling, which is the next thing to it. How are you, Whittlestaff? said Mr. Hall. Wonderful weather, isn't it? I'm told that you've been in trouble about that drunken husband which plagues the life out of that respectable housekeeper of yours. He is a trouble, but if he is bad to me, how much worse must he be to her? That's true. He must be very bad, I should think. Miss Mary, why don't you come over this fine weather and have tea with my girls and Katie Forrester in the woods? You should take your chance while you have a young man willing to wait upon you. I shall be quite delighted, said Blake, and so will John Gordon. Only that I shall be in London this time to-morrow, said Gordon. That's nonsense. You are not going to Kimberley all at once. The young ladies expect you to bring out a lot of diamonds, and show them before you start. Have you seen his diamonds, Miss Lorry? Indeed, no, said Mary. I think I should have asked just to see them, said Evelina Hall. Why should they join her name with his in this uncivil manner, or suppose that she had any special power to induce him to show his treasures? when you first find a diamond, said Mr. Hall, what do you do with it? Do you ring a bell and call together your friends and begin to rejoice? No, indeed, the diamond is generally washed out of the mud by some nigger, and we have to look very sharp after him to see that he doesn't hide it under his toenails. It's not a very romantic kind of business from first to last. Only profitable, said the curate, that's as may be. It is subject to greater losses than the preaching of sermons. I should like to go out and see it all, said Miss Hall, looking into Miss Lorry's face. This also appeared to Mary to be ill-natured. Then the butler announced the dinner, and they all followed Mr. Hall and the curate's bride out of one room into the other. This young lady, said he, is supposed to be in the Ascendant just at the present moment. She can't be married above two or three times at the most. I say this to excuse myself to Miss Laurie, who ought perhaps to have the post of honor. To this some joking reply was made, and they all sat down to their dinner. Miss Laurie was at Mr. Hall's left hand, and at her left hand John Gordon was seated. Mary could perceive that everything was arranged so as to throw herself and John Gordon together, as though they had some special interest in each other. Of all this Mr. Whittlestaff saw nothing, but John Gordon did perceive something and told himself that that ass Blake had been at work. But his perceptions in the matter were not half as sharp as those of Mary Laurie. "'I used to be very fond of your father, Gordon,' said Mr. Hall when the dinner was half over. It's all done and gone now. Dear, dear, dear. He was an unfortunate man and perhaps expected too much from his friends. I am very glad to see his son here at any rate. I wish you were not going to settle down so far away from us. Kimberley is a long way off. Yes, indeed and when a fellow gets out there he is apt to stay, I suppose. I shall do so, probably. I have nobody near enough to me here at home to make it likely that I shall come back. You have aunts and uncles? said Mr. Hall. One uncle and two aunts. I shall suit their views and my cousins better by sending home some diamonds than by coming myself. How long will that take? asked Mr. Hall. The conversation was kept up solely between Mr. Hall and John Gordon. Mr. Whittlestaff took no share in it unless when he was asked a question, and the four girls kept up a whisper with Miss Forrester and Montague Blake. "'I have a share and rather a good thing,' said Gordon, "'and if I could get out of it so as to realize my property, "'I think that six months might suffice.' "'Oh, dear!' Then we may have you back again before the year's out. Mr. Whittlestaff looked up at this as though apprised that the danger was not yet over. But he reflected that before twelve months were gone, he would certainly have made Mary Laurie his wife. Kimberley is not a very alluring place,' said John Gordon. "'I don't know any spot on God's earth that I should be less likely to choose as my abiding resting-place.' except for the diamonds, except for the diamonds, as you remark, and therefore when a man has got his fill of diamonds he is likely to leave. His fill of diamonds? said Augusta Hall. Shouldn't you like to try your fill of diamonds? asked Blake. Not at all, said Evelina. I'd rather have strawberries and cream. I think I should like diamonds best, said Mary whereupon evelina suggested that her younger sister was a greedy little creature as soon as you've got your fill of diamonds which won't take more than six months longer suggested mr hall you'll come back again not exactly i have an idea of going up the country across the zambesi i've a notion that i should like to make my way out somewhere in the mediterranean egypt for instance or algiers What? Across the equator? You'd never do that alive. Things of that kind have been done. Stanley crossed the continent. But not from south to north. I don't believe in that. You had better remain at Kimberley and get more diamonds. He'd be with diamonds like the boy with the bacon, said the clergyman. When prepared for another wish, he'd have more than he could eat. To tell the truth, Sir john gordon i don't quite know what i should do it would depend perhaps on what somebody else would join me in doing my life was very lonely at kimberley and i do not love being alone then why don't you take a wife said montague blake very loudly as though he had hit the target right in the bull's-eye he so spoke as to bring the conversation to an abrupt end mr whittlestaff immediately looked conscious He was a man who, on such an occasion, could not look otherwise than conscious. And the five girls, all of whom the question of the loves of John Gordon and Mary Laurie had been fully discussed, looked conscious. Mary Laurie was painfully conscious, but endeavored to hide it, not unsuccessfully. But in her endeavor she had to look unnaturally stern, and was conscious, too, that she did that, Mr. Hall, whose feelings of romance were not perhaps of the highest order, looked round on Mr. Whittlestaff and Mary Laurie. Montague Blake felt that he had achieved a triumph. Yes, said he, if those are your feelings, why don't you take a wife? One man may not be so happy as another, said Gordon, laughing. You have suited yourself admirably, and seem to think it quite easy for a man to make a selection not quite such a selection as mine perhaps said blake then think of the difficulty do you suppose that any second miss forrester would dream of going to the diamond fields with me perhaps not said blake not a second miss forrester but somebody else something inferior well yes inferior to my miss forrester certainly "'You are the most conceited young man that I ever came across,' said the young lady herself. "'And I am not inclined to put up with anything that is very inferior,' said John Gordon. He could not help his eye from glancing for a moment round upon Mary Laurie. She was aware of it, though no one else noticed it in the room. She was aware of it, though anyone watching her would have said that she had never looked at him. A man may always find a woman to suit him, if he looks well about him, said Mr. Hall sententiously. Don't you think so, Mr. Whittlestaff? I dare say he may, said Mr. Whittlestaff very flatly, and as he said so he made up his mind that he would for that day postpone the task of telling Mr. Hall of his intended marriage. The evening passed by, and the time came for Mr. Whittlestaff to drive Miss Laurie back to Croker's Hall. She had certainly spent a most uneventful period as far as action or even words of her own was concerned. But the afternoon was one which she would never forget. She had been quite, quite sure when she came into the house, but she was more than sure now, at every word that had been spoken, she had thought of herself and of him. Would he not have known how to have chosen a fit companion, only for this great misfortune? And would she have been so much inferior to Miss Forrester? Would he have thought her inferior to any one? Would he not have preferred her to any other female whom the world had at the present moment produced? Oh, the pity of it, the pity of it! Then came the bidding of adieu. Gordon was to sleep at little Alresford that night, and to take his departure by early train on the next morning. Of the adieu spoken the next morning we need take no notice, but only of the word or two uttered that night. Good-bye, Mr. Gordon, said Mr. Whittlestaff, having taken courage for the occasion, and having thought even of the necessary syllables to be spoken. "'Good-bye, Mr. Whittlestaff,' and he gave his rival his hand in apparently friendly grasp. To those burning questions he had asked he had received no word of reply, but they were questions which he would not repeat again. "'Good-bye, Mr. Gordon,' said Mary. She had thought of the moment much, but had determined at last that she would trust herself to nothing further. He took her hand, but did not say a word he took it and pressed it for a moment and then turned his face away and went in from the hall back to the door leading to the drawing-room mr whittlestaff was at the moment putting on his greatcoat and mary stood with her bonnet and cloak on at the open front door listening to a word or two from katie forrester and evelina hall oh i wish i wish it might have been said katie forrester and so do I, said Evelina. Can't it be? Good night, said Mary, boldly stepping out rapidly into the moonlight and mounting without assistance to her place in the open carriage. I beg your pardon, said Mr Hall, following her, but there came not a word from her. Mr Whittlestaff had gone back after John Gordon. By the bye! he said. What will be your address in London? The Oxford and Cambridge, in Pall Mall, said he. Oh, yes, the club there. It might be that I should have a word to send to you. But I don't suppose I shall, he added, as he turned round to go away. Then he shook hands with the party in the hall, and mounting up into the carriage, drove Mary and himself away homewards, towards Croker's Hall, Not a word was spoken between them for the first mile, nor did a sound or a sob or an audible suspicion of a tear come from Mary. Why did those girls know the secret of her heart in that way? Why had they dared to express a hope as to an event, or an idea as to a disappointment, all knowledge of which ought to be buried in her own bosom? Had she spoken of her love for John Gordon? she was sure that no word had escaped her. And were it surmised, was it not customary that such surmises should be kept in the dark? But here these young ladies had dared to pity her for her vain love, as though, like some village maiden, she had gone about in tears, bewailing herself that some groom or gardener had been faithless. But sitting thus for the first mile, she choked herself to keep down her sobs. "'Mary!' at last he whispered to her. "'Well, Mr. Whittlestaff?' "'Mary, we are both of us unhappy.' "'I am not unhappy,' she said, plucking up herself suddenly. "'Why do you say that I am unhappy?' "'You seem so. I at any rate am unhappy.' "'What makes you so?' "'I did wrong to take you to dine in company with that man.' It was not for me to refuse to go. No, there is no blame to you in it, nor is there blame to me. But it would have been better for us both had we remained away. Then he drove on in silence and did not speak another word till they reached home. Well, said Mrs. Baggett, following them into the dining-room. What do you mean by well? What did the folks say to you at Mr. Hall's? I can see by your face that some of them have been saying some at. Nobody has been saying anything that I know of, said Mr. Whittlestaff. Do you go to bed? Then when Mrs. Baggett was gone and Mary had listlessly seated herself on a chair, her lover again addressed her. I wish I knew what there is in your heart, yet she would not tell him, but turned away her face and sat silent. Have you nothing to say to me? What should I have to say to you? I have nothing to say of that of which you are thinking. He has gone now, Mary. Yes, he has gone. And you are contented? It did seem hard upon her that she should be called upon to tell a lie, to say that which he must know to be a lie and to do so in order that he might be encouraged to persevere in achieving his own object. But she did not quite understand him. "'Are you contented?' he repeated again. Then she thought that she would tell the lie. If it was well that she should make the sacrifice for his sake, why should it not be completed? If she had to give herself to him— why should not the gift be as satisfactory as it might be made to his feelings? Yes, I am contented. And you do not wish to see him again? Certainly not, as your wife. You do not wish it at all? he rejoined. Whether you be my wife or otherwise? I think you press me too hard. Then she remembered herself and the perfect sacrifice which she was minded to make no i do not wish again to see mr gordon at all now if you will allow me i will go to bed i am thoroughly tired out and i hardly know what i am saying yes you can go to bed he said then she gave him her hand in silence and went off to her own room she had no sooner reached her bed than she threw herself on it and burst into tears all this which she had to endure All that she would have to bear, would be, she thought, too much for her. And there came upon her a feeling of contempt for his cruelty. Had he sternly resolved to keep her to her promised word, and to forbid her all happiness for the future, to make her his wife, let her heart be as it might, had he said, You have come to my house, and have eaten my bread, and have drunk of my cup, and have then promised to become my wife? and now you shall not depart from it, because this interloper has come between us. Then, though she might have felt him to be cruel, still she would have respected him. He would have done, as she believed, as other men do. But he wished to gain his object, and yet not appear to be cruel. It was so that she thought of him. And it shall be as he would have it, she said to herself, but though she saw far into his character she did not quite read it aright he remained there alone in his library into the late hours of the night but he did not even take up a book with the idea of solacing his hours he too had his idea of self-sacrifice which went quite as far as hers but yet he was not as sure as she was that the self-sacrifice would be a duty he did not believe, as did she, in the character of John Gordon. What if he should give her up to one who did not deserve her, to one whose future would not be stable enough to secure the happiness and welfare of such a woman as was Mary Laurie? He had no knowledge to guide him, nor had she, nor for the matter of that had John Gordon himself any knowledge of what his own future might be, Of his own future, Mr. Whittlestaff could speak and think with the greatest confidence. It would be safe, happy, and bright, should Mary Laurie become his wife. Should she not do so, it must be altogether ruined and confounded. He could not conceive it to be possible that he should be required by duty to make such a sacrifice. But he knew of himself that if her happiness, her true and permanent happiness, would require it, Then the sacrifice should be made. End of chapter fifteen. Recording by Arnold Banner, Thurmond, North Carolina.